Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you will enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed him to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. The Greek author Plutarch describes how, in ways that the world knows are powerful, truly powerful people are supposed to go about entering a city. He does so by writing about the Roman general Aemilius Paulus, who won a decisive victory over the Macedonians in 168 BC. When Aemilius returned to Rome, his triumphant entry to the city procession lasted three days. The first day was dedicated to displaying all the artwork that Aemilius and his troops had plundered. The second day was a military procession devoted to all the weapons they had captured. The third day began with the remainder of the plunder borne by 250 oxen whose horns were covered in gold. This plunder included more than 17,000 pounds of gold coins. Then came the captured and now publicly humiliated king of Macedonia himself with his extended family. And finally, Amelius entered Rome, mounted on a magnificent horse-drawn chariot. He wore a purple robe interwoven with gold. He was accompanied by a large choir singing hymns that praised him. That, the Greeks and Romans knew, is what power looks like when it enters a city. The Jews, the kind of peculiar people regarded by the Greeks and Romans as as backwards people who lived in this far-off backwoods corner of the empire, had a different idea. And so their authors, for example, told the story of the Maccabees. Maccabeus meaning a word that means hammer. And how Judas the hammer, Maccabeus, led his people to independence from the uh, brutal tyranny of the Seleucid Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, who in 167, under the penalty of death, forbade 
the practice of Judaism throughout the empire, including in Jerusalem. He also constructed right smack dab in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem an altar to Zeus. And on that altar in Jerusalem, he sacrificed a pig. It's hard to imagine a greater smack in the religious face of the Jews than that, which, of course, is precisely why Antiochus Epiphanes did that, because leaders who are great with what the world so often calls greatness aren't content with winning victories over their opponents or enemies. Leaders who are great with nothing more than what the world too often calls greatness must proceed to humiliate and shame their opponents and enemies. In the case of Antiochus Epiphanes, his attempt to shame and humiliate the Jews by sacrificing and then shedding the unclean blood of an unclean pig in the temple of the Jews in praise of a god who was not the god of the Jews backfired in what became known as the Maccabean Revolt, which went on for years, and many on both sides shed their blood. But eventually the temple was retaken and re-cleansed and rededicated, after which, after a war that lasted years more, the Jews did win, and then they had a century of more or less self-rule. At the beginning of that century, when the war was at last won, the Maccabees, the Hammers, led now by Simon, his brother Judas, had been killed in the war, triumphantly entered Jerusalem as crowds shouted praises and waved palm branches. Following Jewish tradition, tradition which went clear back to the first kings the Jews ever had, Saul and David and Solomon, following Jewish tradition, Simon Maccabeus, unlike Amelia Paulus, would enter the city not riding a horse-drawn gilded chariot, but rather a donkey. For Israel's military heroes and kings were to be known not only for the greatness of their military prowess, but also for the greatness of their humility. Humility about the fact that all victories finally and ultimately come from God. So it was that the prophet Zechariah, centuries earlier, in that passage we read earlier, writing of the time when God would ultimately and fully establish God's kingdom among God's people, said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that king, the prophet said, by defeating God's and the people's foes in battle, would usher in a reign of peace. And indeed, after the Maccabean revolt, there was for the Jews a peace of sorts for a century. 
That just doesn't change the fact that Simon Maccabeus, like pretty much every other king and savior the Jews had praised and waved palm branches before and thanked God before, Simon Maccabeus, like Saul and David before him, had a lot of blood on his hands when he rode into triumph into the city as palm branches were waved and praises were sung. And the blood was the blood of his enemies. For Simon Maccabeus, Simon the hammer, likewise was great with greatness the world knew was great. One interesting detail to keep in mind before we turn the page, the Maccabees are remembered not only for defeating the enemies of their people in battle, but also for, see if this rings any bells, also for cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. Along the way, the temple having been polluted by religious practices which were offensive to both the holiness and the onlyness of God. Turn the page two centuries later and another rode into Jerusalem. Another who too was a temple cleanser. The temple he believed having been polluted by religious practices which were offensive both to the worship and the grace of God. For two centuries later Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey, a donkey which Mark says had never been sat on or ridden by anyone. Well, how does that work, do you suppose? Miraculously is how that works, I suppose. And as Jesus, the temple cleanser and miracle worker, entered the city, palm branches were again waved and praises were again sung and kingship was again proclaimed upon him and messiahship was both heaped and hoped upon him, and hosannas were shouted to him. Hosanna being a word that kind of functions in a, in a dual kind of way. On one hand, it's just kind of a word of praise, but also literally it functions as a prayer, a prayer which literally means save us now. Unlike, however, either Emilius Paulus or Simon Maccabees, this king and savior and Messiah was not this day praised for a victory he would win. He had won. He was praised for a victory. They prayed he had come here at long last to finally win. And they were, of course, spot on exactly right about hoping that hope upon him. Except, of course, they were at the very same time spot on exactly wrong, too. For their hope at least in the case of way most of them, was that like both David and the Hammer Brothers, the victory he would win would be a victory he would win by raising up an army and then driving out their oppressive Roman enemy, even if it meant getting some Roman blood on his hands. He, however, on the other hand, had different plans. His plan was to defeat our strongest and deepest and darkest and most oppressive enemies and to do so by getting his own blood on his hands and feet and brow 
and back and sighed. Later, in Luke's Gospel, the risen Christ, on Easter Sunday evening, would, in Luke's words, open the scriptures to his disciples. That is to say, he would lead them in a Bible study, explaining to them all of the things in the law and the prophets, that is to say, all of the things in what we now think of as the Old Testament, which were actually things about him and all the things that he would do and the things that he needed to do, even though not a single one of them had understood a single bit of that while he was doing it. I'm going to go on the record as saying that I'm absolutely positive that one of, the, one of the Old Testament passages that he told them that Easter evening was about more than things old. It was also about him here and now was the Old Testament reading which we heard from the prophet Isaiah just a few minutes ago, which I imagine is a prophecy which Jesus, who knew his Bible, of course, could very well have literally even been meditating on as he sat on a donkey's colt entering the city. For unlike a lot of tweets that are tweeted and posts that are posted, the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah aged very well. They were every bit as relevant 500 years later as they had been the day they were first spoken. Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame, for he who vindicates me is near. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Well, the truth, of course, which not anybody in the crowd that day understood, but Jesus understood it. The truth is that in the city that day, his adversaries, his enemies, were waiting to confront him. And with names like Caiaphas and Pilate, and Herod, that is to say, as leaders of both church and state, not separated, but in this state, in this case, united, they would declare him guilty. And guilty, they would declare that he needed to die. Which, of course, once again, is where theologically delicious irony can be found in the story given the fact that, of course, Jesus believed he needed to die too. It's just that, of course, they believed he needed to die for his guilt and sin, whereas he believed he needed to die for theirs and mine and yours which, of course, just about can't not lead us to that second lesson we heard today. Philippians 2. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today's gospel reading tells of the hosannas, the prayers the palms, the praises that will, to the surprise of most, but not Jesus, be followed by suffering. That Philippians text, on the other hand, to the surprise of all who believe that death has the last word, reminds us that suffering will be followed by praise. Praise which, by the way, will make the praises of that group in Jerusalem that day and the praises we've done our best to praise him with here today pale in comparison. For the praises on the other side of his suffering will not be the praise that resounded in one city one day years ago or in multitudes of Christian congregations around the world today, but will rather be a praise that will resound when, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which is to say that on the other side of the suffering the praise that Jesus will be praised with is praise that will echo not through streets or churches, but will echo rather throughout universes. Because why? Because his power isn't the alleged, but actually only pseudo-power of those in this world who win their battles and ascend their thrones with the blood of their enemies on their hands, then to accomplish all they can with threats, violence, and fear. His power is the actual power of he who threatened and violated would not fear but love. Love even his enemies. Love even the guilty. Love even sinners. Indeed, love even us to death. But stay tuned. I mean, come back Thursday. Come back Friday. Come here to hear all that he will do, but stay tuned. Because I don't care how dark it gets. Stay tuned for the final thing love will do. The final thing he will do is win. Amen.